our young budding republic at that time, $15 million. And it netted us 828,000 square miles of land. You do the math, and you would find that land at that time was valued at a mere $18 per square mile. It's a far cry from our current real estate market. The state of Missouri was acquired in the Louisiana Purchase, and it was in Missouri that the great frontier town of St. Joseph was located. And in 1860, St. Joe's was the starting point of an enterprise that has left an enduring legacy in the minds and hearts of Americans for the past 150 years. That legacy was the Pony Express. The Pony Express guaranteed the delivery of post from St. Joe's all the way to San Francisco. It's a staggering 1,840 miles, and they guaranteed to make this happen in just 10 days. It's an amazing feat for that time. Riders would need to change out horses every 10 to 15 miles. Now, if you're an equestrian, then you'd know that they'd have to do this or else the horses would just die from overexhaustion. They had to change out their horses. For this reason, relay stations were set up along the route from St. Joe's all the way to San Francisco. Now, to make sure that the Pony Express would deliver on their 10-day delivery guarantee, the company needed to attract employees with a specific skill set. Those delivering posts for the Pony Express would need to be willing to navigate through treacherous terrain on horseback, no less, and they would need to be courageous enough to stave off bandits who were looking out for these riders along the route from St. Joe's to San Francisco. On the screen behind me, you should be able to see an old hiring advertisement for the Pony Express. Now, if you can't read it from where you're seated, let me read it for you. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows. That excludes myself. Not over 18. Must be expert riders. Willing to risk death, not just once, but daily. Orphans preferred wages, $25 per week. Now, granted, this was over 150 years ago. But what could be seen as a humorous hiring ad, there is one chilling requirement embedded within it. And that is, these riders must be willing to face death daily. Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's a beck and call It's a beck and call to those who've been made right with God. It's a call to risk everything. Even death for the sake of the one who sends us. And it's a call to those who were once orphans. We sung about it in our time of singing. How we were once orphans, estranged from our Father, but have now been reconciled to the Father and welcomed into His family. What this passage does is it orients our minds and our hearts to think rightly about our relationship with God. It shows us that although we can be tempted to resort to old ways of living and old patterns of thinking, we're now new creations. We don't need to resort to do the things that we once did for acceptance. As new creations, we've also been given a new task. Now, by failing to heed the call from this passage... 
we run the risk of isolating ourselves from a dying world. And we run the risk of disobeying our Lord. This is a challenging call. But it is a call for every Christian. It's a call to risk death for the dying. And that call is this. As the reconciled, we're sent out on a deadly mission to be heralds of a life-giving message. As the reconciled, each of us are sent out on a deadly mission to be heralds of a life-giving message. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 16. 2 Corinthians is located after the Gospels, after Romans, after Acts. You'll find the Corinthian correspondence. It's the second of those letters. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. My friends, this is God's Word. It's been given to us so we can read it, delight in it, and grow by it. From now on, therefore, we regard, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal you to not receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Center Church, now is the favorable time. Behold, Center Church, now is the day of salvation. Father, I pray that as your word is opened, it would be effective. Grant me the gift of just forgetting myself and trusting you and your spirit. And I pray, be active in the hearts and minds of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point to consider is God has given us a ministry. Paul begins the passage here with a conjunction when he uses the word, therefore. Now, many of you know what a conjunction is. This might just be revisiting grammar school. Maybe it's transporting you back to Saturday morning cartoon time and that great song, Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function, pops on the TV. Conjunction is a word that serves to connect a current idea to a previous one. Simple. 
When Paul begins the passage with therefore in verse 16, we're being pointed back to the previous statement that he makes in verse 15, and that's where he writes, and he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is joining a new thought to that previous one. Those who now live for Christ, the Christ who died and was raised, they no longer live for themselves. And he builds upon that thought by writing, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, the idea here is that those who no longer live for themselves, those who live for Christ, no longer view people based on what's on the outside. We don't look at people and engage with them based on externals. Another way to put it is Christians do not operate according to human standards. The way we view and interact with others has been completely transformed. Values we might previously have held to, such as the pursuit of prominence, the pursuit of wealth, status, having a good reputation, or even the pursuit of independence. Those no longer dictate how we are to regard other people. No longer are others a means to get what we want, and no longer should we look to avoid interactions with other people. We shouldn't look to avoid interactions with others who might not jive with our standards. After the first sentence in this verse, Paul then provides a contrast that gives us a glimpse into what his life was like pre-conversion. He writes, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Before Jesus, Paul was hell-bent on destroying the Christian faith and those who identified with it. All you need to do is read the beginning part of Acts chapter 8 to get the background and the context for that. But the question I want to pose for us is who were we prior to our own conversion? How did you regard Christ? Now, it's helpful for us to remember what life looked like before Jesus. That's why hearing testimonies like the one Godfrey delivered is such a powerful practice in the Christian life. It should always humble us to think about who we once were. It should cause us to marvel at the grace that's been given to us in Christ. The way we have once viewed Jesus has changed, and along with that, the way we view others has changed. Now, logically, the question we have to ask is, how has this happened? By what agency have we been changed? Paul anticipates our question, and then he responds that in Christ we are new creations. Fleshly allegiances, or things that we used to identify with, no longer hold sway over us. We have a new primary identity, and that's being in Christ. What should identify us more than hobbies, more than our favorite TV show or our favorite football team, more than even our jobs, careers, and our family, is being in Christ. It's our primary identity. Our relationship to God, which has been ratified by the Spirit of God, who now indwells us, is the most important thing about us. 
This is because with the dawning of the new creation, the Holy Spirit does in fact reside within us. We are in Christ and not of this world. Two prepositions there. In Christ, not of this world. Prepositions are important, but that's for a different time and day. The Apostle, he often uses this descriptor, this phrase, in Christ, as a way to explain our individual experience in the kingdom of God. But he also uses it to describe our corporate identity. What this means is anyone who is in Christ, if you're in him, you've individually been given faith to believe in him. And you've been given his spirit as a seal, but at the same time, you're transferred into a family of brothers and sisters, one of another. And we do not regard our brothers and sisters according to the flesh. We don't look at one another according to what's on the outside, according to human standards. We're to regard each other according to the Spirit. Because the Spirit is is who now lives and resides within us. Now, lest we rob Paul of any of his intended meaning here, there is more to consider when he uses the phrase new creation. At the micro level, this speaks to our individual experience of faith. Each of us are made new in Christ. But at the macro level, zooming out to 30,000 feet, there are new cosmic realities that are at play with the coming of Jesus, into the, the breaking through of his kingdom as he came to this earth in his death at the cross and his resurrection as a, and ascension. In him, the dawning of a new era is upon us. It is now. What once existed in the Garden of Eden, which was perfect fellowship with God and man, it's being made new, reclaimed in us through Christ. And this same fellowship is now available for all people. Believers can walk with God unashamed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the intended pattern that was to be set forth in the garden. And we don't need to fear banishment from God because the second Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. He perfectly obeyed all the way up to the cross. As a man, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. And if you're in Christ, you now have his very spirit living in you because of that perfect obedience. And what this does, what his spirit does, is he causes you to hate old patterns of thinking and old ways of living. You're not defined any longer by those things that you used to do. You're not defined by addictions to pornography, to alcoholism. You're not defined by those things because you're in Christ. This is all possible because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. The old is past. 
The new has come. My friends, there's a radical discontinuity to who we once were and how we lived to who we now are. How we now live will look much different than how we used to live. This is what it means to be a new creation. And as new creations, we've been given an important task. Paul writes in verse 18 that those who've been reconciled to God are given the ministry of reconciliation. Being reconciled to God means we're no longer at war with Him, but we're at peace. And after being made at peace with God, we're given this new task. God has given us a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, which leads to our second point. God has given us a message. Well, we've learned from Paul how he tells the Corinthians of the ministry God has given to believers. It's a ministry that involves reconciliation. But what's meant by reconciliation? I touched on it just a moment ago. But reconciliation can be defined as an exchange of a relationship that was once marked by hostility, but that is now marked by friendship. We were once hostile, enemies of God, but now we're made his friends. Paul takes it a step further, though. He he does this when he writes, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In the previous verse, Paul refers to us as individuals who've been reconciled. Now, he talks about the world being reconciled to God. Now, is Paul talking about the entire universe? Immaterial things included? No. Not right here. He's referring to the entire order of mankind. Essentially, what Paul is getting at is there's no barrier any longer between God and man. No longer does a sacrificial system need to be followed in order to be made right with God. No longer is there a distinction between ethnic Israel and Gentile when it comes to friendship with God. Anyone can be made right with God and brought into fellowship with Him. The only requirement is being in Christ. And if you're His friend, He no longer counts our trespasses against us. The heinous sins that we once committed, and even sins that we will commit in the future, those are no longer reckoned onto your eternal account. God looks over your sin and looks at the Son. The Son who lived a life of perfect obedience, who died a death that absorbed God's wrath for our sins. This is reconciliation. This is the good news of the gospel. It's our friendship and fellowship with the triune God of the universe. So we know now that we've been given a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. So now the appropriate question is, how does this ministry work? Because there are a lot of ideas and thoughts in the evangelical world of how we are to be reconcilers. Does this ministry of reconciliation require social justice efforts? Like feeding the hungry, providing shelter to the homeless? Does it involve caring for God's creation? 
by recycling and cleaning up beaches doesn't mean we must be committed to racial reconciliation. While these things come from a good place, come from a place of wanting to serve people and do good things, those are not our primary ministry. What Paul says is we've been given the message of reconciliation. Literally, it could be translated, we've been given the word of reconciliation. It's a message that's meant to be spoken. It's to be shared with others. It's the message of the gospel. Words have to be used in our message. We can't expect people to just observe our lives and then for them to come to Christ. We have to tell others about the message of reconciliation because it's our ministry. And our ministry requires the use of words to get the message out. Now in verse 20, Paul tells us that we ministers are also ambassadors for Christ. Or literally, on, we're ambassadors on behalf of Christ. It's important for us to know what it's meant to be an ambassador. We have to understand what this looked like in the ancient world. To be an ambassador was a prestigious office. Some looked at it as being one of the highest honors bestowed to a citizen of Rome. It was afforded the same protection as some of the highest government offices. But there was also a risk in being an ambassador as it meant being sent into a foreign land with a message from the one who sent you. It's not a coincidence that Paul would use the term here to describe the Christian's role. Christians, we do share in the protection of God, but it's not merely a physical or earthly protection. My friends, we're at great risk when we become ambassadors for the gospel. Being an ambassador who carries this message runs the risk of death. Paul was aware of this. That's why he wrote chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There's the risk of reputational damage as we take the message of the gospel into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods. And there's the risk of being ostracized by family and friends. Maybe you've experienced it already. Here in the States, we do run the risk of reputational death. In other places around the globe, Christ's ambassadors are being put to death, literal death, for sharing this message. But we cannot falter in this task. We cannot shy away from it, because as believers, we hold to this glorious promise, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends might leave you. Family members might forsake you. People might stop inviting you over to gatherings. But God will never leave you nor forsake you. 
in our English Bibles, the first part of verse 20 is rendered, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The phrase, making his appeal, it's actually one word in the original, in the original Greek. And it's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians when he describes how God comforts us. So the appeal we're to make is an appeal that's informed by the very comfort of God. One commentator actually makes this point. God is urging us to enter into his gentle embrace and endless love. His hands are not on his hips, exasperated. His hands are wide open, beseeching. Our attitude and being Christ's ambassadors should be informed by comfort and love. As his ambassadors, we shouldn't be exasperated when our kids don't respond to the gospel. We should respond with a gentle embrace and with endless love. And as his ambassadors, we shouldn't stop sharing the gospel because one of our brothers or sisters or cousins cussed us out for sharing the gospel. We should constantly be beseeching them, urging them to respond to the call of the gospel. Our disposition toward the lost should be one of compassion and of love. Now verse 21 is the means by which this message is made possible. If you're going to get a tattoo, get this verse tattooed on you. No, I'm just joking. Don't get a tattoo. But it's a great verse. Because no other verse conveys the exchange of grace that we've received. How lopsided it is. And how much in our favor it truly is. I'm going to read the verse. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to intersperse some commentary throughout each phrase of the verse. For our sake, meaning out of his sheer goodness, out of his amazing grace, out of his kind love for us, has he done what he has done. He, that's God, made him the eternally incarnate Son of God, the Lord of Lord, the King of all kings, to be sin. Not that Jesus ever sinned, but he was counted as a sinner as he hung on the criminal's cross. He who knew no sin, Christ, the second Adam, who, remember, lived a perfect life of obedience in which he obeyed the law of God to reconcile the people of God so that in him, in Jesus, that is united to Christ in his life, his death and his resurrection, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The record of debt that we had accrued due to our sin has been fully accounted for in Christ. This is our message. This is the glorious message that we get to share with a dying world. This 
is the hope that we've received, that's been given to us, based on no merit of our own. Pixar and Disney, they cannot fabricate hope like this. Politicians, they cannot deliver on a message of hope like the hope that we have in the gospel. Family cannot give you the same hope. So if things are getting crazier in your family, it's okay if you have hope in Jesus. No message that the world has to offer compares to the message that we've received in the gospel. And as ambassadors who stand in the place of Christ in our families, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, we get to share this message that we've been given to those we know and love. Which leads us to our last point. God has given us a mandate. We have a ministry. Our ministry is fueled by the message. But Paul now ends the passage with a passionate plea. First, he reminds the Corinthians that we are working together with him. Or, we are ministers and ambassadors with Christ. Then in verse 1 of chapter 6, he urges the Corinthians to not receive the grace of God in vain. Paul's pleading here with the Corinthian believers that what God has done for them in reconciling them to himself and forgiving them his very righteousness to not receive this in vain. It's tempting. Oh, it's so tempting to log in at work on Monday morning, to get your kids ready for school every day of the week. The grind that you experience, in the grind that you experience, it's tempting to forget all that God has done for us in Christ. It is very tempting to receive the grace of God in vain. But he tells us, we must not receive God's grace in vain. But then he does something interesting. He uses, behold now, twice in the same verse, in verse 2 of chapter 6. Why does he do this? He does this to emphasize the urgency of the matter. Paul knows very well that his own life could end at any moment. He says in just a few verses, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, the list goes on and on. These are things Paul experienced that it must have also informed what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. As God's ambassadors, we will face affliction. We'll face hardships. We'll experience calamities and maybe even many sleepless nights as we think about those that are near and dear to our hearts that don't know Jesus. Take a moment right now to think about people in your life who don't know him. There are others out there who need to hear this message of hope. They need to hear the message about our reconciling God, the one who's given us his very righteousness in Christ. And we're reminded here 
that sharing this message does not come without risks. People might respond. They might be open to hearing about who Jesus is and what he's done for them and what he's done for you. But more times than not, we will not see the fruit of our labors. More times than not, as we are planting seeds along the way, we won't be able to see the fruit. But we mustn't become discouraged. Because now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. And what's more, we've been given a message that we don't need to improve on. This message is rock solid on its own. Everything we need to declare about Jesus has been revealed to us in his word. As Hebrews 1-2 says, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. We don't need to wait around for an audible voice to speak to us because we have his very word that we can go to. We have his message inscripturated for us. It's here for us to share with others. The whole point of this book is to tell about how Jesus saves sinners. Now, I mentioned in the first point that with the dawning of this new era that we now live in, the fellowship that once existed in the garden is now being reconstituted in Christ. Well, it was also in the garden that Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. It's often referred to as the creation mandate. But in a spiritual sense, we as disciples have also been given a new creation mandate. We are to make disciples according to Matthew 28, 19. In Christ, not only are we being reconstituted for perfect fellowship with God, but the original task that was given to Adam and Eve, that goes on through us. Through our proclamation of the gospel. In closing, each of us who belong to Jesus and call him Lord, every one of us that is in Christ is a new creation. We no longer live the way that we used to live. We no longer think the way that we used to think. We should now be new people with new desires. Let me challenge you with this. If you don't have new desires, and if those old patterns of living keep sprouting up in your life, read this passage again. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. We've been given an, a new task, and that's to share the message of reconciliation with others. So application here is very easy. Tell others about who Jesus is. Tell others about what He's done for you. Because, my friends, He's done so much for you and I. Here are three very quick, simple points of application. First, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Each one of us, we need spiritual eyes to see. We can't do this on our own. The Holy Spirit needs to be active causing us to see the need that is ever present around us. Secondly, pray for others 
to have opportunities to share the gospel. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 4.3, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. This is something we should be doing for one another. We should be praying in our small groups for each other's evangelistic witness. Evangelism is not just for those who feel called to evangelize. Remember, each of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And I'd also say, pray for the Lord to reveal to you how he can use you in the broader mission of the church. This might look like setting up regular time in your calendar to pray for missionaries. Maybe it looks like praying for a prospective church plant like the one that we might have going out to Boise. could also look like praying to see if the Lord's calling you. Maybe the Lord's calling you to a foreign mission field, or maybe he's calling you on a church plant, or maybe he's calling you to partner financially with missionaries and church plants. And lastly, when opportunities arise, tell others about Jesus. As I was writing this, this point of application hit heavy in my heart. I know that I don't share enough with others. I know I can shy away from engaging people with the gospel. I just need to go back to this passage. Because this passage, it informs us of who we now are in Christ, And it tells us that there's a dying world who needs also to hear this message. Like the riders for the Pony Express, we too must be willing to risk death daily. And as those who've been reconciled to God, we're now sent out on a deadly mission, a mission that might involve reputational death. We might lose friendships. We might lose relationships with family members over this message. But God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. Because each of us are called to be heralds of a life-giving message. And he will sustain us. Let's pray. Father, your word inspires, it brings hope, it comforts, it afflicts, and it even challenges at times. And I pray, Lord, that we would in a healthy way, feel challenged. I pray that each of us who are in Christ, each of us who are new creations, that we would would feel challenged to go and tell others of this glorious message. Do that in the hearts of your people by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.